0: Hello, Rock. Welcome to our daily devotional. As we continue with our walk through the book of Isaiah, we are now continuing a um, three-section story uh, where the Assyrians, the Assyrian army, is at the gates of Jerusalem. Yesterday we saw that the response to their dishonest spiritual conversation was silence. Today we're going to look further at Hezekiah's response to the situation. So we are in chapter 37, uh, various verses where we read this. When King Hezekiah heard their report, he tore his clothes and put on burlap and went into the temple of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the court secretary, and the leading priests, all dressed in burlap, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They told him, this is what King Hezekiah says, today is a day of trouble, insults, and disgrace. It is like when a child is ready to be born, but the mother has no strength to deliver the baby. But perhaps the Lord your God has heard the Assyrian chief of staff sent by the king to defy the living God and will punish him for his words. Oh, pray for those of us who are left. Soon afterward, King Sennacherib received word that King Terhaka of Ethiopia was leading an army to fight against him. Before leaving to meet the attack, he sent messengers back to Hezekiah in Jerusalem with this message. This message is for King Hezekiah of Judah. Don't let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you with promises that Jerusalem will not be captured by the king of Assyria. You know perfectly well what the kings of Assyria have done whenever, wherever they have gone. They have completely destroyed everyone who stood in their way. Why should you be any different? Have the gods of the other nations rescued them, such as nations of Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telasar? My predecessors destroyed them all. What happened to the king of Hamath and the king of Arpad? What happened to the kings of Shefervayim, Hena, and Iva? After Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it, he went to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord, and Hezekiah prayed this prayer before the Lord. O Lord of heaven's armies, God of Israel, you are enthroned between the mighty cherubim. You alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. You alone created heavens and the earth. Bend down, O Lord, and listen. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to Sennacherib's words of defiance against the living God. It is true, Lord, that the kings of Assyria have destroyed all these nations, and they have thrown down the gods of these nations into the fire and burned them. But of course the Assyrians could destroy them. They were not gods at all, only idols of wood and stone shaped by human hands. Now, O Lord our God, rescue us from his power. Then all the kingdoms of the earth will know that you alone, O Lord, our God. And this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. His armies will not enter Jerusalem. They will not even shoot an arrow at it. They will not march outside its gates with their shields, nor build banks of earth against its walls. The king will return to his own country by the same road on which he came. He will not enter this city, says the Lord. For my own honor and for the sake of my servant David, I will defend the city and protect it. That night, the angel of the Lord went out to the Assyrian camp and killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the surviving Assyrians woke up the next morning, they found corpses everywhere. Then King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and returned to his own land. He went home to his capital of Nineveh and stayed there. One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his god Nisroch, his sons Adrammelech and Sharazar killed him with their swords. Then they escaped to the land of Ararat and another son. Esarhaddon became the next king of Assyria. And this is the word of the Lord. It's be to God. So, as Hezekiah moves a little bit beyond the response of of, uh, silence in the face of intimidation uh, in our previous chapter, um, but he's still not responding uh, so much directly to Sennacherib. Instead, his attention is turned uh, directly to God. And one thing I think is interesting is that, first of all, he has this. Uh, seemingly unshakable confidence in God, but it's not like a blind optimism. Uh, in, in fact, this is evidenced right in the first verse that he puts on, uh, you know, sackcloth. He puts on burlap. He's in in mourning and repentance and and deep emotion. And then he calls uh, in verse four and following. He calls for Isaiah to join him in prayer to pray because the king of Assyria has mocked God. And then also in verse four, the the NLT kind of glosses over this, but. Uh, the they pray for the remnant. It says those who are left behind, but it says they pray for the remnant. And I think that's actually an important word because it's a concept that's come up a number of times in Isaiah's prophecies and Isaiah's preaching. And uh, especially in like chapter 10, for instance, there's this promise of the remnant being brought back to Jerusalem. And I wonder if Hezekiah has been attentive all these years, attentive to The preaching of Isaiah. So he latches onto this this long-term promise of God about the remnant that will be brought back. Um, And then we see uh, uh, in verses 9 through 13, we see Sennacherib's uh, response, which is basically to repeat the threats of the previous day and the really kind of insults against uh, the Lord and all those who have fallen before him. And Hezekiah doesn't dismiss this threat. Again, it's not uh, blind optimism. He literally instead hands it over to God. He goes back to the temple, and he lays the letter, uh, rolls it out in front of God. It, it's kind of like he's literally handing it over to God, giving it over to God. And what I think is really commendable about his faith here is that he focuses on God, not on himself, not on his kingdom. Uh, he sees that the battle is not truly between Assyria and Judah, the way the, uh, the uh, king of Assyria has played it out, but rather the real battle is between Assyria and God, because they've made it about that. And God's response shows that it's um, that it's God that the Assyrians are mocking, and whether or not the Lord has the power to save. Uh, just a word about this: 185,000 who are are slaughtered by uh, the of the army that are uh, killed by uh, the angel of the Lord. Um, I've mentioned in a previous devotional about seeing this uh, tablet in the uh, Museum of Near East Studies out in Chicago, and I thought it was a copy. I said it was a copy before, so I looked into it. And I found out, actually, there's three prisms of Sennacherib that refer to this event, but omit any of the defeat of Assyria. Uh, there's one in London. There's uh, one another place I forget. But one of them is in Chicago. It's a genuine one of the three tablets that's recorded, identical copies Um that were made in the ancient world that record this event. Now, of course, uh, with ancient histories, uh, they tend to leave out any negative details. And so there's no mention of why the king of Assyria turns back and and goes back home without defeating Jerusalem. It seems strange, this kind of omission, but you know, even in modern histories, we don't like to include the negative details. I'm, I know that for instance, at the uh, presidential library of Richard Nixon, there's only one brief mention of the Watergate crisis, even though it was central to his presidency and his role in history, and yet there's just this barest mention of it. Well, you know, similar in the ancient world, maybe even more so, there's just this, uh, well, we went to Jerusalem and then we turned around uh, and went home. Um, But the Bible is very different. It's very clear about mentioning the failures of its people and all the downsides. And so I think in that way, it's also that much more trustworthy when it mentions miraculous events like this as giving a reason for, the re- uh, giving a reason for why King Sennacherib ended up turning around and going home in defeat. Uh, what do you see here?
1: So uh, the first thing I see is right. Sennacherib comes and is basically trying to intimidate uh, the people of Judah. And it's, uh, it's an interesting thing because you know, he's a, a lot of talk, but he does have this massive army. And so, why is he talking so much? Why not just go in and just do his business and you know clear out the uh, people of Judah and be done? Um, and the reason is this: I, I actually think the most va- important weapon, the most valuable weapon in any war, is fear. And and I think this is such an important uh, thing for not only for people who are running militaries—not not really any of us to remember—but actually for all of us who are trying to follow Jesus. Because here's the thing: we're involved in this spiritual battle right? For our souls, for our culture, we're involved in this constant spiritual battle. And I think the greatest weapon that the devil has used. everyone thinks, oh, the devil's going to come and, you know, cut my brake lines or light my hair on fire. That's not how the devil works. The devil just simply makes us afraid or makes us ashamed, right? He accuses us, he intimidates us. And And I say this, the greatest enemy of faith, everyone thinks, oh, it's doubt. You know, that's the thing that really undoes faith. No, not true. Not true. Doubt is actually a very healthy part of faith, right? That's the kind of this constant conversation that you're having with God, about trying to learn what's true. The, the name Israel, the literally the, that name means one who wrestles with God, and I, anybody knows, you know, Jewish people knows this is actually sort of the, the 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 strength is this, you know, kind of wherever there's two Jews, there's three opinions, right? That's sort of the joke that that that, that they. They're, they're wrestling. They're 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 trying to get a hold of God. What is this you're saying? And who are you? And what can I believe? There's all kinds of doubt and great faith. And mm-hmm. in fact, I think so oftentimes great faith and great doubt just live together. Mm-hmm. No, the great enemy of faith is fear. To use a different illustration, all right. We've talked about, you know, Peter as he's walking across the waves. As long as he's looking at Jesus, he's doing fine. He's in the middle of a storm, there's waves everywhere. It's as soon as he looks at the waves, he gets afraid. And in that moment, he starts to sink. And I tell you, just as a follower of Jesus, this is exactly my experience. There are some big waves around us all the time. And it is so easy for me to get distracted from Jesus and look at the waves. And I actually find I need to be very careful myself. In fact, I found that I myself have got to be very careful about how much time I spend reading about politics, you know, watching, uh, uh, you know, YouTube videos about culture, I, I want to be aware of current events so I can be thoughtful, so I can hopefully be a, a thought leader, right, helping other people know how to to navigate some of these, these big waves and, and being faithful and following Jesus. However, I found that if I spend too much time staring at those waves, my gaze can get distracted from watching Jesus, and I start to feel afraid, and that's when I start to sink. And so I see that what the, the snack trying to do is he's trying to make Hezekiah and the people of Judah afraid so that they'll take their eyes off of God. What instead Hezekiah does right away is goes into the temple of the Lord, lays all this out before the Lord, seeks the Lord's prophet, you know, calls on the Lord's promises that Hezekiah in that moment of intimidation actually specifically turns his gaze on God. And, and lays this at God's feet. So that's the first thing I noticed. The second thing, and I'll be quicker with this one. Uh, but the second thing I noticed, verse 34, I'm going to pick up. He says, the king will return to his own country by the same road on which he came. He will not enter the city, says the Lord, for my own honor. And for the sake of my servant, David, I will defend this city and protect it. And, and as I read about that, I, I think actually about the, the, the promise that God has made to the church. And you know, I have no confidence. Goodness knows, our, our church has gone through seasons of of uh, just real vitality, and other seasons of sort of despondency. We, you know, times when our budget is doing great, and other times when our budget is in crisis. We've been in all the different kinds of seasons. Uh, and and there are times when I wonder, golly, are, are we gonna are we gonna make it? You know, are we are we still gonna be here in in you know, five years or five weeks? I don't know. Uh, I don't know what will happen to High Rock Church. But here's what I have zero fear about. I have zero fear about the church. Mm-hmm. God will not let the church die. And I hear all these threats, just like King Akron. are all these people threatening and saying, oh, the young people are interested in faith. And, you know, just my whole life, I feel like I've been listening to the prognostications of those who say that the, the Christianity is kind of in its, you know, kind of dying days. God made a promise, right? In, in uh, uh, Matthew 16, um, Jesus says uh, that, you know, Like the the church, you know, is, is built upon this rock and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God has made a promise that the church will not die. And so if I were having the trust of the human leaders, myself included, I would think the church is doomed for sure. It's almost like, you know, some of the dumb things we do, it's like we were trying to tear it apart. But the reality is that God himself Will defend it for his own honor, for his name's sake, and for for the sake of his mission. And so that's where my my all of my confidence mm-hmm. is. There's no way I can mess up enough to overcome God's incredible power and grace.
0: Hmm. Well, that's a theme we're going to uh, return to tomorrow a lot about where our focus is. Uh, but for now, Dave, I'm wondering if you'd be willing uh, to pray for us that our eyes would be on God and the covenant that God has made with us.
1: Of course, let's pray together. Lord, we are so easily made afraid, and there are so many big waves around all of us. And yet, God, we want to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, you are the one in whom we trust, not our cleverness, not our ability to ride the waves or evade them. Lord, you are the, the one who promises us victory and protection and security. God, it is in you alone that we place our hope. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior.
0: Amen. Amen. Well, thank you everyone for joining us today. I hope you come back tomorrow as we see another moment in Hezekiah's life and how he responds. Go in peace.